I'd like to take up your Bibles. This morning's reading is taken from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, which can be found on page 793 of the Church Bibles. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning to read at verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's pray as we begin to ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, you tell us that your word is like a lamp to our feet. And so, Father, we pray that your word would do that this morning. That, Father, as we walk through this life, your word would guide us and lead us. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us understanding of this passage, that you help us to understand it, to apply it, and to live it out. In Jesus' name. Amen. The idea of hope coming out of despair is something that fills the public's imagination. The story of hope emerging out of hopelessness is a story that we love as human beings. It's in our films we go and see, isn't it? It's often when all hope seems to be lost, when all avenues of, uh, seem to be uh, ended, and it seems that uh, the darkness has crept in, that that's the point where the, the superhero comes in and saves the day. Take, for example, this um, film. Uh, no prizes for guessing, but see if you can guess it. Um, it's from one of my favorite films in recent times. And the line is this. The night is darkest just before the dawn. And I promise you, the dawn is coming. What a great line that is. Um, it's from Dark Knight Rises, uh, the recent Batman trilogy. And it captures this idea, doesn't it? That the darkness is creeping in. And it's at that point when all hope seems to be lost that Batman comes in and saves Gotham from the baddies. But more seriously, though, that narrative, that story of hope emerging out of hopelessness is something we apply when disaster hits us as a nation and as individuals. Take, for example, the recent bombings in Manchester the tragic murder of people there was followed by stories of hope 
So, for example, this headline, Hope Overcomes Despair from Manchester Bombing. Or the recent loss of life in the Grenfell Tower disaster, the great tragedy that struck that tower and those people, was followed by stories of hope, of communities coming together, of sharing goods, of looking out for one another. We love hope coming out of hopelessness. But the thing about that story, it's not just something that operates on the outside of us. It doesn't just stay in the world out there, but it becomes part of our internal dialogue. It becomes internalized. So that when we face despair in this life, we have a way of lifting us out of that despair. We tell ourselves stories of hope. I wonder what you say when despair hits, when you face bereavement, when you face ill health, when you face relationship breakdown. What is it you say to yourself to give you hope? How do you finish that sentence, it'll be okay because... See, for me, I think it's just sort of sheer effort. Um, When something bad happens, I kind of plow myself into work and think that just working away will solve the problem. But for others, it might be finances. It'd be okay when I clear that debt or when I get that house or I get that promotion. Might be friends. Might be relationships. The pain of singleness will be lifted when I meet that person. Or I feel more satisfied in myself when I meet that group of people and when I'm accepted by that group. We tell ourselves stories of hope all the time. The idea of hope emerging out of hopelessness is a story we love as human beings. Friends, my my aim this morning is that we will put our hope in God's solution. That we wouldn't hope in our kind of own stories we tell ourselves but we will hope in this promise that God gives you today. We're in Jeremiah, and um, we've been looking at Jeremiah over the last few weeks, and Jeremiah's written at a time where all hope seems to be lost. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's writing in the 6th and 7th centuries BC. It's quite a while ago. And he's at the real depths of despair. See, Babylon, this kind of huge superpower in the Middle East, has risen to power, and it has taken down nations before it. And eventually, Babylon gets to to Jerusalem, to Judah, to where Jeremiah lives, and it strips, the, the empire strips it bare. It's like a plague of locusts sweeping through nations. This is kind of 1939 sort of territory, as nations fall before this empire. Just imagine what Jeremiah must be feeling. Just imagine what the nation must be feeling. Take a look, for example, at um, this. It's from Jeremiah chapter 39. And this is what happens when Babylon sweeps in to the nation. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah, the king, before his eyes, and also killed, slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. My friends, the Bible's not ignorant to situations of hopelessness. If you're facing despair, the Bible's been there before. These people in these pages have faced that hopelessness. And it's at this low point 
as the darkness seems to creep in, as all hope seems to be lost, as the candle looks like it's about to be extinguished, that God acts and God speaks and God makes a promise. It's there in verse 31. If you've closed your Bibles, please reopen them or pull them up on your app. It's um, page 793. And this is God's promise in verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. See, the hope in the despair comes in this covenant. You might be saying to yourself, that seems a little bit of an anticlimax. That doesn't seem very hopeful. Well, that's probably because we've not understood how serious covenants are. So let's do a bit of work on that. Uh, A covenant in the Bible is a solemn promise or a solemn oath that is sworn between two people. In our world, we make all sorts of promises to one another. It's kind of how our world works every single minute of every single hour of every single day. We make all sorts of informal promises, don't we? We arrange to see people at certain times. Uh, When the Facebook invite comes through to to a party, it doesn't really happen with me, but it it might do for you. We click yes, no, maybe. If we arrange to be at someone's for dinner, we arrange uh, to be there at a certain time, we make promises. We make all sorts of informal promises. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we make kind of, we make formal promises in our society. So the marriage ceremony can be called, and it is called, a marriage covenant, as each party makes vows and promises to one another. Just recently, I experienced one of these formal covenant-making ceremonies. I um, made my will. I'm over 30 now. I need to kind of think about these sort of things. And I don't want any peeping on the front row there to um, see what's in it. But here it is. Here's the will. And um, I don't know if you've ever made a, a will yourself, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting experience. First of all, you go along to the solicitors, and um, they do a sort of kind of fact-finding um, session with you. Uh, they ask where you want all your money to go to and where your kids want, you, uh, where you want your kids to go to. And because uh, I haven't got any money, it was quite a quick session. <laughs> and, then, and then later, they call you back again. And um, this time, they bring out the will on, like, the poshest paper you've ever seen. You know, watermarks, that sort of thing. It's not even white. It's so posh. And um, there's a ribbon at the top. You can see it there. And it comes out with a wax seal. And you're meant to read every page. And then you sign every page. And then the solicitor signs every page. And then they bring another person in to sign every page. Because this is a solemn document. I've only got a copy of it here. The, The other one's locked in a safe somewhere. Because this is a serious promise. The future of my kids depend on it. That when I die, this will be executed. And this is the type of promise that's made when God says he's going to make a new covenant. It's get the solicitors out time. It's get the wax stamp out. It's get the poshest paper. I'm drawing up a new promise with you. I want us to see this morning three things about this new covenant and why it is so wonderful and so important to understand. First of all, I want us to see that this new covenant reveals God's grace, that this covenant reveals the necessity of God's action, and finally, I want us to see this covenant is established. First of all then, this new covenant reveals God's grace. Now, it's important to understand that this is not the first covenant God has made with his people. Have a look at verse 32. 
Jeremiah says this, I will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Uh, the covenant uh, referred to there was the covenant made through Moses. And if you want to be technical, it's called the Mosaic Covenant. Sounds pretty cool. And in that covenant, God, God's people were in slavery in Egypt, and God decided to rescue his people from that misery. And he brought them into a new land and made them into a new nation. And as part of that process, God made a covenant with them. And as part of that covenant, God was so gracious to them. He led them by the hand. He was like a husband to them, he says. But as part of that covenant, the people were to obey. They were to keep their side of the bargain. But verse 32 says they broke it. Even though God was so gracious, he was like a husband, they committed spiritual adultery. I wonder how you are when um, promises and agreements are broken. Um, I'm a little bit quirky and you'll work that out after a while. And so I'm quite into kind of consumer rights and that sort of thing. I used to work in financial regulation and um, I kind of like sort of sticking up for the consumer and that sort of thing, or sticking up for myself. So whenever any agreement's broken with a company or a warranty's not kept or terms and conditions are not met, I will pounce upon the company and get very obsessed with it and stand on my rights. I know my rights as a consumer. And with this covenant, God could have done the same. He could have stood on his rights. He could have thrown the book at them. He could have utterly destroyed them. And he would have been perfectly justified to judge his people forever. But what does he do? He promises a new covenant. He promises to start again. I wonder what your picture of God is. I think often there can be two views of God. There can be this kind of sort of hippie type of God where he's totally relaxed about sin and doesn't really worry about disobedience. But that's not true. Verse 32 says this covenant was broke. There was a time where God's patience ran out. But on the other hand, I think people lurch to the other extreme and kind of imagine God as a disciplinarian, that he chucks the book at people, that he comes down heavy on sin, and, and it, there's, there's no patience. Well, that's not true either. I love this promise because it reveals God's graciousness. Yes, he judges sin, but he wonderfully promises a new covenant. This new covenant, it reveals God's grace, but it also reveals the necessity of God's action. It reveals the necessity of God's action. What do I mean by that? Well, the hope of this new covenant doesn't lie in you or me. It doesn't lie in your ability to keep it. See, in a marriage ceremony, in a marriage covenant, you get two parties, husband and wife, and they, they stand up the front here and they make vows to one another. And it depends, uh, the, the covenant depends on both people keeping their side of the bargain. But this is different. God steps in and keeps both sides of the bargain. He, fa uh, he acts where you failed. And he acts where we can't keep it. First of all, God causes his people to love him and to know him. Do you see that verse 33? This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law in their minds and will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, that the heart in the Bible and Hebrew thought was thought to be where the will of a person sat. Not the wills we were talking about earlier, but the kind of whole desire of a person, their whole life perspective sat in their heart. And God says that that is where he's going to put his law. He's going to transform his people to put that law right at the center of their being, right at the center of their will. See, the old covenant, the one with Moses, the, the law was written on stone tablets, the, the, the ten words or the ten commandments, and the idea was that teachers in Israel would, would teach that law to, to the congregation, and then the congregation would speak that law to one another, and then people would go back to their households and they would speak the law to the family, and the idea was that as the law was spoken, it would become internalized and that people would want to do it. But even though God's people heard the law, they didn't love the lawgiver. And even though the law was spoken, they didn't obey it. Why? Because their hearts were not changed. My friends, that is the problem with us. See, I think before I was a Christian, I became a Christian at 21, and before as a Christian, I thought like I think most people do that we kind of naturally love God, that we're on the right path. Okay, we're not perfect, and, and for that the Bible probably helps us out a little bit. But essentially we're going in the right direction. Our hearts are towards God. But that is not what the Bible says. And the Bible tells us we're not even on the right path. We're going in the wrong direction. And do you know, that actually was a huge relief to me. It was a huge relief because that was my experience. And you'll know that in your own hearts. I'm sure for each one of us here, there'll be points that God presses on us, points where we find it difficult to trust God, points where he says one thing and we want to think or do or say another. And you'll know that at those points, your instinct is not towards obedience to God, but to be God of your own life and to go your own direction. The truth is, we can't drum up love for God. But here's the wonderful thing. God steps in and does it for us. He promises to transform, to give a new heart, and a heart that loves the law of God. And that truth, it leads to a wonderful transformation. Verse 34, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Wonderful promise there, verse 34, to know God personally. That God will so transform his people by putting the law in their hearts that they will know him as they know their own thoughts. See, no longer is it going to be that the law spoken from the front, it's disseminated in the congregation, it's spoken in families, it doesn't rely on that because it will be in people's hearts. And so they will know God personally. A few years ago, I um, got into Twitter. Um, and uh, I have a sort of on-off relationship with Twitter. I'm quite into it at the moment, a little bit obsessed. But the, the, the funny thing about Twitter, I don't know if you've ever signed up for it. Has anyone on Twitter? 
there we go, one, <laughs> two, two maybe. So this is going to fall flat, but I'll explain. So, so Twitter is a, it's essentially, um, it's, you get to write messages that are text message length, so 140 characters. And you, on your Twitter feed, you get a stream of tweets um, from different people. And there's all sorts of people on there. There's kind of celebrities on there, and then there's kind of normal people like me and Tim and Steve, I think, are on there. And I remember when I first used it, just being overwhelmed by this kind of sense of intimacy you felt with people that you wouldn't otherwise be connected to. Because you're receiving their kind of messages, it feels like they're almost speaking to you personally, that you have that connection. Now you forget the fact that another 30 million people were following Justin Bieber, but it feels like you've got that relationship with him. How much more so should this covenant excite us? To know God personally, to know what he's like, to know him in our hearts, this lies right at the center of the Christian message. See, a lot of people think that Christianity is a lot about rules and kind of, you know, setting up frameworks for our lives to help us to be good. It's not primarily about that. A lot of people think the Bible's full of kind of examples of people we're to follow, and if we follow them, that we're somehow please God. Bibles, that's not what the Bible's about. Actually, right at the center of Scripture is this wonderful promise to have a relationship with your Creator, to know God, to love Him. If you don't believe me, I've got Jim Packer here to say, uh, to make a similar point, and he puts it a lot better than I can. He says this, he says, what is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. God causes his people to love him, to know him, and he also removes the barrier of sin. End of verse 34 there, after declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now, the, going back to the covenant with Moses, the, the covenant-making ceremony was um, quite a graphic affair, and apologies if you're a bit squeamish, you might want to put your head between your knees or something like that, because we're going to talk a bit about blood. Uh, the, the whole thing was kind of immersed in blood. Here's, a, um, here's an extract from it. I feel a bit queasy talking about it now, actually. Um, here's an extract. This describes what happened. Then he, that's Moses, sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Just picture that for a moment. Imagine I've got a bowl of blood and sprinkled it over St. Mary's today. In fact, I've got one just to, no, I'm joking, I'm joking, I wouldn't do that. Uh, but imagine that, imagine a hot climate as the blood splashes against the altar, as it's sprinkled on the congregation. It's graphic and it's pretty horrible to think about, but it's, it's important symbolism. Because the point's clear, isn't it? That, that if this covenant is broken, blood will be demanded. On God's side, if he broke the covenant, 
on the people if they break the covenant. And that is what happened. They did not obey, and blood was demanded. And yet, God promises to forgive. He promises to remember their sins no more. Isn't that wonderful? Imagine if there was a book of your life, and in that book was written every deed you've done, every sin you've done, everything you've thought, everything you've said. And imagine not only that, everything was written in that book about what you failed to do every time you failed to love your neighbor as yourself, every time you failed to honor God in particular situations. God says, I'm going to forget that book exists. I'm going to destroy that book. And the amazing thing, my friends, I want us to see this morning is that God doesn't ignore the demand for blood, but he offers up his own. In the person of Jesus Christ, God came to us and gave his own blood to establish this covenant. Have a look at this verse from uh, Luke 22, verse 20. Familiar verses if you're used to communion services. In the same way, Jesus, uh, in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this, uh, this cup is, sorry, I'll start again. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You see the significance, can't you, now, in, with this background in Jeremiah? Jesus identifies his death, his pouring out of blood, as the start of this new covenant. The document's been drawn up, the, the wax seal's been pressed, and the signature at the bottom is the cross of Christ. So that all who trust in him today can say that this new covenant is established with them. See, no longer are we saying the days are coming like the prophet Jeremiah. No longer are we looking out on the horizon for signs of light. But we have, the days have come. The covenant has been made. We bathe in the sunshine of this new day. Today your sins are forgiven. Today the law has been put in your heart. Today you've been transformed to know God personally, if you trust in Christ, if you're a Christian. Isn't that wonderful? This is the true location of our hope. This is the true location. Why put our hope in our own abilities to lift ourselves out of earthly situations? Why tell our own narratives about hope that comes from this world? This is where true hope lies. Because of Christ, because he poured out his blood, he's established this new covenant with you and me today. And my question for you this morning is, will you take comfort from that? Will you take comfort? When it came to making my will, I um, held off quite, for quite a while. I'm, I'm a bit tight with finances, and I heard about the fact that you could get a free will if you wait till November. So um, I held off for quite a while. And I remember being quite worried about um, what might happen if um, the worst was to happen to me and Claire um, before the will was drawn up. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, just pay the £100, Rob, and take that <laughs> worry off your mind. But, you know, I saved some money, so I was quite chuffed with that. And um, I remember feeling very worried uh, over, particularly over the summer, I think we were driving to France, and we were thinking, blimey, you know, if we crash the car, 
the kids will have to go with the grandparents, and uh, who would want that? I'm joking. I love, <laughs> we love our parents. They're great. Um, it's not recorded, is it? Yes, it is. We love our grandparents. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and I just felt quite worried. But, but when it came to the, the, the will-making session, I remember walking out the solicitors and just feeling like a huge burden had been lifted that if the worst was to happen to my children, that I could rest easy in the fact that they would be looked after. How much more so should this covenant do that to us? Everything's been done because of Christ. You're secure. You know God. Your sins are forgiven. And his law is in your hearts. If you trust in Christ, that is true of you today. You can say that you are in this new covenant relationship. Will you take comfort from that? Now, it might be you're here this morning and um, life's pretty okay for you. It's kind of ticking along nicely. And that's okay. That's, we have periods like that. If that is you, please pray that your security comes not from your earthly circumstances, but from this promise, this hope, this covenant, this relationship. It might be that you're here um, this morning and a lot of this is pretty new to you. A lot of it's kind of unfamiliar. You've still got lots of questions. And we love that at St. Mary's. We love people coming and bringing their questions and we want to encourage you to do that. But I want to say to you, this offer is open to you today to know your Creator, to have your sins uh, forgotten and forgiven, to know God. But finally, I want to talk to those of us here who are feeling that hopelessness at the moment. Perhaps even coming to church this morning was a struggle. I'm sure there'll be a few of us. I want to say to you, there is hope in what you're facing. Maybe the circumstances seem so dark, so hopeless, but there is hope And it comes in the fact that Jesus has offered his blood for you. And he's established this new relationship with you. And you matter to him. My friends, the dawn has come. Let's pray. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Heavenly Father, we are astounded at your graciousness to us, that, Father, you do not treat us as we deserve, but you form this new relationship with us. How we praise you for that, Father, and we ask that that would be lived out in our lives. Please help us to believe it, particularly in the despair. Please help us to trust you, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.